0: Hallelujah. Father, we confess that Jesus Christ is our rock of ages and that though we in our sin deserved hell itself, while we were lost and without God in this world, when we were hell-bent in our transgressions and sins, nevertheless, you first loved us, Lord Jesus, while we were still in our trespasses and took upon yourself the punishment that we deserved. You are, therefore, our rock of ages. In you we find refuge for our souls. We have, in your work, in your blood on Calvary, been delivered from the punishment, the power, and eventually the presence of sin. And in this reality of the gospel, we have realized the double cure of redemption. Christ is our justification. Christ Jesus, you are our sanctification. We pray that this day you would be magnified and glorified as we have lifted up our hearts in worship. I pray that we would bow our ears in adoration as the authority of Jesus Christ and his gospel, your gospel, Lord, is proclaimed today. We pray that you would equip the church to stand in a day where it feels to our flesh demanding, recognizing that our weapons are sufficient and your grace is enough for us not only to remain but also to advance the work of your kingdom, moving towards that goal of the glory of our God covering this earth as the waters cover the sea. Finally, we pray this morning, as we gather at your table at the close of this service and the transition to our time of fellowship, that you would remind us of the great privilege of this covenant meal. As we partake of the elements at this table, this altar today, we recognize that they were freely offered to us, not by any merit of our own, but at the cost of the flesh and blood of our Savior now risen and ascended, yet taking on flesh and our sin, dying in our place, that we might worship Him today. I pray that we would do so in the hearing of, and in the proclamation of the word, in the fellowship of the saints, in the prayers that we offer, and in our songs of praise unto you, O Lord, in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious and blood bought privilege it is to fellowship in the presence of the Lord, in the fellowship of the saints and around the authority of God's revealed Word. It is my prayer today that He would renew in our hearts the appreciation even as we grow in our understanding of what He has proclaimed in the Scriptures. Today we turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 14 through 22 and I encourage you to turn there with me as you're able. Today is our communion service. At the close of this message And after a time of prayer, the communion table will be open for those and only those who have confessed their faith in Jesus Christ, have repented of their sins, and as a consequence, have been born again. For those who are believers today, the table of God's provision symbolized in the bread and in the cup is available for you. As we turn to the scriptures for our Communion Sunday series, We recognize that the church is not without her enemies. A title of this morning's message is Enemies by Nature, or you could extend the title by saying Enemies of the Church by Nature. Peter spares no analogy to reveal to us the nature of the bad guys, if you will, that we face. The aim of this morning's message is to equip the church to both identify and to rebuke her enemies with gospel authority. I submit to you, that's what Peter does in this text. He both identifies and rebukes enemies of the church with gospel authority. And of course, by his example, he's equipping the church, including our own, for all time to do the same. So with that introduction, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word today? Rudy, if you don't mind bringing up those lights back there a little bit so we can see. With your scriptures open to 2 Peter 2, 14-22, hear now the word of the Lord. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So chapter 2 is a warning section in the Apostle Peter's letters to the church. It opens, that is chapter 2, with a brief profile of false teachers, verses 1 through 3. We've covered that in past weeks. He follows this summary with a reckoning perspective, if you will, it's a picture of the reckoning the punishment that the unrighteous deserve and three examples in the course of history when God has intervened to do just that. And this is meant to encourage the true church in spite of her enemies. This takes place in verses 4 through 10. In this section, Peter draws on three other incidents of God's decisive intervention to build the confidence in his hearers that God is ready and able to rescue the godly and to punish the unrighteous. You see that in verse 9. It's a purpose statement for God's uh, excommunication of the fallen angels and by implication, sparing the elect angels, verse 4, for His complete destruction of the ancient world, virtually in the world global flood of Noah. We see this in verse 5, yet sparing eight in that ark of His grace. And then finally, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction by fire raining down from heaven upon the ungodly, yet Lot, the righteous man, is saved in spite of this visitation of God's judgment. These three examples remind us, again, that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, verse 9. The remaining portion of the chapter, our passage today, is then dedicated to a thorough analysis and a condemnation of the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, especially by revealing their nature. Peter descriptively shows the corruption of character that marks these false teachers. The words of the apostle, I submit, are just as applicable for us today. The very nature of the hour in which we live is such that it requires discernment to tell the truth From the deceptive lie. And while many believers may not be well versed in the discernment necessary to identify and confront false teaching, I suggest it is not for lack of potential targets. Again, we might lack, Peter addresses that lack, by means of encouraging and building our discernment through his words, but though we might lack the discernment necessary to identify and confront false teaching, it certainly is ubiquitous. It's certainly, there are certainly plenty of targets to rebuke and to identify with gospel authority today as there were then. Now, a summary description or definition of a false teacher that struck me as helpful is this, purveyors of corrupting influences, or even more simply, voices of corrupting influence. What are false teachers? I suggest a good summary definition. Voices of corrupting influence. By that measure, I'm sure you can think of a few voices of corrupting influence in your own mind that seem to be featured in the various uh, platforms in in the day in which we live. Wielding the standard of righteousness, biblical righteousness and truth, it becomes easier to identify deceptive messages bombarding us from all sides. Who is promoting these pagan, these worldly, these sinful, these secular values, which are so popular today? Well, Peter answers, these are the false teachers. According to Peter, they're not just false teachers, but he descriptively, he describes their nature by equating them with irrational animals. They're like irrational animals, blots and blemishes. They are accursed children, he says. We've covered those verses already, 12, 13, and 14 in a prior message. Peter spares no analogy in identifying the character and intentions of Christ's most insidious enemies. His words, I suggest, they serve to heighten our sense of spiritual awareness, recognizing the acute danger of false teaching, and to help us appreciate the virtues and glories of the true gospel by contrast. And my message today is shaped around some of these analogies that Peter uses. The remaining portion of this chapter to describe the nature of the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. And the heading could be just this, false teachers are, or voices of corrupting influence are, number one, Balaam followers, verses 14 through 16. False prophet Balaam is invoked as an example to describe the kinds of things, the, mean, the, or the uh, descriptive traits and the mechanisms, the deceptive means that false teachers employ Secondly, false teachers are waterless springs and storm mists, if you will, verses 17 through 19. And then thirdly, uh, kids, you'll like this one. False teachers are dogs and sows. Uh, So I need a kid to tell me what a sow is. It's like a female, it's like a mama what? What kind of animal is a sow? Does anyone know? Yeah, someone shouted out a little louder. That's right. Peter compares false teachers to dogs and pigs. So that's kind of fun. All right, so those are our three main categories today. So let's get into it. Verses 14 through 16 voices of corrupting influence, false teachers, are number one, Balaam followers. And to get, grab the context, I feel it necessary to retrace the steps of the prophets or the apostles' thinking all the way back to the book of Numbers. Who is Balaam? Numbers 22 introduces him to us. So would you turn there with me? There are, we won't go through all the chapters. That document this story, but for four chapters, 22 through 25, we see the prophet Balaam interacting with one of the people of God's enemies, a king who procured his services to pronounce a curse on the people of God. In spite of himself, Balaam, though he wants to, you know, earn his cash by his uh, superstitious cursing of God's people to the benefit of this enemy king, he, he can't do it. In spite of himself, he continues over and over again to bless the people of God. Is this because Balaam is a virtuous and godly man? Absolutely not. Just as the non-voice of his donkey was overridden by the sovereignty of God, so the voice intending to curse the people of God as a false prophet is overridden by the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies a blessing, even messianic prophecy, in spite of himself. But we look at the story of Balaam and we see a picture, sort of a template of what false prophets look like. There are people who are insidious. There are people who are antichrist. There are people who use certain devices and mechanisms and manipulative ploys to to, uh, coerce people and to lead them into sin and deception. And at the end of the Balaam story, in spite of his blessings, he was successful in his false prophecy and we'll see the weak link in the armor, the chink, if you will, in the armor of the people of God in the course of this story. Suffice it to say, it is important to understand Balaam. Why? Because the Bible, not just in Second Peter, but in multiple places, references Balaam as sort of the archetype of false prophet. He's like the classic example of bad guy. And this is the people who follow in the footsteps of what Balaam would do or bear the characteristics in nature who are enemies or their nature is like Balaam. You can understand that they are enemies of the people of God. So we looked at the story of Balaam and we find a few examples of this situation and what we are to learn. And let me just read you a few scriptures accordingly, starting with Numbers 22, 7 through 12. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. So divination is like superstitious a false prophecy, and so they want to give a hex, a curse, if you will, you know. and they're hiring this witchcraft guy, kind of, Balaam, to do this, this false prophet. So they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. Balak is the enemy king of the people of God. It's kind of hard to tell the two apart because their names are similar. But once you figure out what's going on, you find it's a conversation between a witchcraft guy, false prophet, and Balak, a king, an enemy of Israel. He said to them, Lodge here tonight, verse 8, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. And come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. Verse 12, this is the sovereignty of God featured here. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. But then they convince him and coerce him and he ends up going anyways. They give him more money. He pronounces a blessing instead. The king is pretty annoyed. He tries again. It doesn't work. And this story continues, 26. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you this is chapter 23. All the Lord says I must do. And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, and he goes on with some instructions to build altars in a vain attempt yet again to pronounce another curse. In verse uh, the previous chapter, verse 26, we have this little exchange. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead. So you guys, kids, you probably remember this event. But before we, I read the rest of this, these few verses, maybe you can answer this question. Kids, what do you think is the most famous donkey in all of history? What is the most famous donkey in all of history? Talking donkey, talking donkey that's correct. I would vote the talking donkey, Balaam's donkey that spoke to him a word of rebuke and correction. The angel of the Lord, verse 26, went ahead and stood in a narrow place, and there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Here's a question. Who has more fear of God in this story? The donkey, this brute, irrational beast? The donkey, that's correct, or Balaam, the false prophet. Who fears God more? The donkey does. That's right. Who spoke the word of God in this instance? Well, not, God actually put his words in the mouth of a donkey. Verse 28, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me all these three times? Struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made me a fool, a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Who's the irrational one now? Here's this false prophet arguing with his donkey. Imagine coming upon that scene. You know, who, who's a good candidate for a mental institution now? The false prophet is, of course. And later, Peter says, God used the donkey to restrain the prophet's madness. What is more mad, you might ask, talking to a donkey or not fearing the Lord? Not fearing the Lord is the answer. One of my favorite quotes, it's madness to live this life oblivious to the truth of an almighty God. One of my favorite quotes comes from J.C. Ryle. And if I can remember it, it goes something like this. Surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared to die. Surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared to die, J.C. Ryle says. And of course, what he's referring to, you can shorten that quote to say, surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live without fearing, respecting, honoring, living in light of the view of the Lord, who gave them the breath, who made this creation, who holds their future, even their life and death, in his very hand. That is true madness. And false teaching denies the fear of God, does not take into account his sovereign prerogative and his glory. It instead keeps man as the center and the focus. It's manipulative to human being's preferences rather than bowing and dying and sacrificing and laying down one's life and taking up one's cross in the service of the glory of the greater King in the fear of the Lord. And this is the lesson that Balaam teaches us as he learns it. Well, he doesn't even learn it, but as he illustrates it through these circumstances. Verse 30, And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? He said, no, submitted to the voice of the Lord in the mouth of his donkey, begrudgingly. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam wished he had a sword to kill his donkey and now sees that the drawn sword of the angel of the Lord, which most often in scripture is a theophany or a revelation of God himself, is standing there ready to bring it down in judgment on Balaam. Peter reminds us of this because this story illustrates that the Lord knows how to deliver his people, which he did in this case, and to execute his enemies, which he also does. As we move through the story, we see a record of this in, verse, in chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel... Uh, "...lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their God. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel." And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. What's going on? Well, further explication comes in chapter 31. Eventually, the Lord speaks to Moses in 31.1 saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. The story continues. They killed, verse 8, the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. A list of names there. And they also killed who? Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So God's people were agents of his justice to wield the sword as it were in the hand of the angel of the Lord against the false prophet, refused to fear him and did something horrible. What did he do? Verse 16 explains, behold, these on Balaam's advice. So he was acting like a counselor an advisor to the Midianites and the king Balak. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So in spite of himself, Balaam cannot pronounce a curse on Israel, but he he calls the king over and says, you know, I've tried this three times and I imagine whispers in his ear, I got a different idea. Exploit them in their weakness. Send out the pretty virgins and seduce them. If they transgress the law of their God, if you can tempt them with immorality, if you could convince them to break covenant with their God, they will be putty in your hands. And if you're patient, and if you sow these seeds of deception, if you lure them in with these temptations, we can defeat them another way. The Trojan horse of immorality, as it were, the temptation sent out to beguile this actually proved effective. And though in the end, God's judgment was brought down on Balaam, son of Peor, Balak and the Midianites, nevertheless, this becomes an example of the kind of insidious, of the kind of insidious actions and motivations and uh, strategies of unbelief and of false teachers. So that's our context. False teachers, Peter says, are Balaam followers. Verse fifteen back in our text, our primary one, second Peter two, fifteen. Forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So how are the enemies of the Church of Jesus Christ similar to Balaam in Peter's day? Well they do things like this. When we back up to verse fourteen. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. Just like Balaam, they have this insidious, deceptive campaign to exploit weak souls, to take advantage of their sinful desires, and to lure them into wickedness. This is what insatiable eyes means. Insatiable insatiable means cannot be satisfied. Insatiable eyes, it, it's, it's a descriptive way of referring to appetites that won't be satisfied. Uh, the driving the sin nature to irrational lust. Think of that time in Genesis 19, 11, where although the Lord in his judgment struck Lot's entire neighborhood blind because they wanted to uh, commit uh, homosexual uh, violent acts, upon these messengers of the Holy One that were visiting Lot at the time. God struck them blind, but what did they do? They wore themselves out, groping at the door. This is irrational, beast-like, unsatiable, lustful behavior. It represents the trajectory, the, the, how bad the depravity of the sin nature can go. Thank God for his restraining hand that our nation is not as bad as Lot's neighborhood was yet. But what we need to learn from this text is that if we don't repent, we're playing with fire. If we, like Balaam in our culture and through the values that we promote and endorse, generally speaking, encourage weak souls to commit or to identify with immorality and perversion, and all of this myriad of God's law-breaking sexual identity perverse behavior, for example, it will lead to a whole-scale hollowing out of the moral fiber, framework, and foundation of our social order, and we will collapse and crumble and be judged by God for this kind of thing. Therefore, in light of these kinds of false teachings that abound in our day, we are called to speak clearly and truthfully, to rebuke and to identify the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ and to do so with gospel authority, to point out those who have eyes uh, full of adultery with insatiable sin, seeking to entice unsteady souls and to command them to repent in the name of Jesus. Peter says in chapter one, verse 12, therefore I intend, and this is just by contrast, if you don't want to know what the heart of true gospel ministry looks like. Peter reflects it so well in this verse. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And what qualities is Peter referring to? That would be those faith supplements he opens his epistle with. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. If you want to reinforce a nation, reinforce the soul, strengthen the defenses against the immorality of a corrupt age. If you want to encourage your own discernment and your own armored defenses to identify and rebuke the enemies of Jesus Christ and his church with gospel authority, add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. There's a further way that these false teachers were like Balaam of old. Not only did they exploit the weak-minded, insatiable for sin, enticing the vulnerable, and derailing unsteady souls, but they had hearts trained in greed. They had gone astray. They sought, like Balaam, the son of Beor, they sought gain from wrongdoing, exploiting the weak, greed-trained hearts, self-serving motives. Contrast this with the apostolic vision for ministry echoed by Paul. And 2 Corinthians 12:15. And that's that passage where Paul says, "I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls." This is what legitimate gospel service, gospel ministry, and gospel testimony looks like. Laying down one's life as Jesus did for us for the sake and benefit for others, not exploiting them to our own ends or using or manipulating or uh, through greed or other sinful intentions. The uh, others for our own ends. The souls of the church to which Peter writes are of utmost importance. Those who fear God consider the value of the soul and they take it very seriously if someone treats lightly the value of the soul. Now in our day and age, boy, is this a message that we need to hear. You know, blasphemy used to be a capital crime there are times in the past where people would be burned at the stake for blaspheming God in public. Wow, that's so shocking to our ears. Don't even have a category for it. If you wanted to, to, today you could drive to Minneapolis and shout the most blasphemous, perverse stuff at the top of your lungs about Jesus Christ in downtown area. And people might be annoyed with you, but I guarantee, I'll bet you 100 bucks you won't get arrested. Oh, because of free speech. What if you had a position of influence, though, in society, and your blasphemy was more than just a madman screaming on a street corner? It was a calculated effort to entice and seduce young and impressionable and vulnerable souls. What if it came in the form of fighting for your right as a kindergarten teacher to have secret conversations with your children about your sexuality as a homosexual, which is what people are fighting for, against a bill for just a little provisional grasp you know a fingernail grip on parental rights when it comes to public education in florida right now what if you find yourself in that situation how valuable is a soul we live in a society and in a culture that values the external the temporal the passing we're a materialistic society we have all our priorities upside down But this body won't live forever in spite of our attempts to do so. We pickle ourselves with all kinds of crazy chemicals. We alter our physical appearance as if we can defy death by plastic surgery. But the only thing that survives death is our soul. And most often in this culture, that carries the least amount of value as anything else. And now in the public forum, people are fighting for the right to corrupt the souls of the impressionable little ones from kindergarten to third grade with homosexual self-identity, perverse, identity, politics, all kinds of craziness, giving us flashbacks of Sodom and Gomorrah and our news cycles today. Why? Because we don't value the soul. Now, I'm not going to give to you, I'm not going to write a resolution and submit it to the platform of some political party that we restore public hangings or burning at the stake for blasphemy today. I'm not even going to say that that's wrong according to Scripture Why would I say something that extreme? Because the Bible says it already. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. If you presume in lack of fear of God to corrupt the little ones and to take the image of God in its most vulnerable form, the manipulating the values of a little child and to screw it up, to self-validate your sinful preferences by influencing the next generation... The wages of that kind of thing is death. And whether or not our judicial system reflects it, there's a higher judicial system. The sons of uh, 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 Balaam, the son of Baor, they will die by the sword of the angel of God. There is a judgment day coming. And there is a judgment seat by which we all must answer for our actions and stand before a holy and righteous God. And how will it fare for us if we fought for the right to manipulate the little ones on issues of this much, uh, of this kind of importance and weight, these examples that I've been giving you? You see, by this standard, we can identify and rebuke the enemies of Jesus Christ with gospel authority. It becomes more clear when we hold up the lens of Scripture and we see that arguments to the contrary are madness, but was rebuked by his own transgression, that is Balaam. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice, restrained the prophet's madness. What will restrain the madness of our hour? I pray it will be the voice of God among Christians and through Christians who tell the truth. What will restrain the madness of the insatiable desire for iniquity in our day and age? I pray that it would be your values, your voice, your convictions as you stand for truth and as you train your children in the way that they should go. What will restrain the madness of the insanity and perversion of our hour? I pray that it would ring from the pulpits of God-fearing preachers and pastors and churches that yet remain in this dark and increasingly, it would appear, depraved land. But make no mistake, if we won't speak, God can use a donkey to do it. Quite the indictment, isn't it, when the rocks have to cry out because his people won't speak? Quite the indictment when a donkey has to tell the truth because there's no one else around to restrain the prophet's madness. Let it not be so, saints. Let us gain instruction and encouragement and equipping from the Word of God in the epistle of 2 Peter to identify and rebuke the enemies of Jesus Christ with gospel authority. Sounds harsh, preacher. It may, but just remember this that you once were lost in your transgressions and sins, you also are a sinner redeemed by grace. When you're speaking to the individual, you have a hopeful message. Jesus' power can redeem the most wicked sinner, but there are no shortcuts and there are no exceptions, and we must proclaim the truth. No one repents in sackcloth and ashes. No one weeps tears before the cross of Jesus Christ until they realize how much their sin affects, how much their sin offends a God who has the power to do something about it. No one weeps before the cross of Jesus Christ until their eyes, so to speak, are opened, and they see the angel of God with the sword of judgment hanging over their head, and they know that they deserve it. And only then, saints, will they run to the side of Jesus Christ that was pierced with that same sword, because that was the necessary payment for their sins to be atoned for, and that is what this table represents today. Second major analogy in our text today, false teachers not only are Balaam followers, but they are waterless springs and storm mists. These are waterless springs and mists driven by storm, verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You know, that is a verse worth highlighting, is it not? Could be a key verse for our age. Verse 19, they promise them freedom. Who promises them freedom? Voices of corrupting influence promise us freedom all over this culture. But they themselves are slaves of corruption for what overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. What of this analogy, waterless springs and stormy mists? Well, I thought of two ways to illustrate this. First, as far as waterless springs go. So let's say you have a herd of camels, and you have a group of servants and people with you, it's sort of a caravan, caravan, a convoy. In ancient times, and you're traversing a long wilderness. Invariably, you will plant or you will plot your journey according to the water holes. Now, someone might look at the map from a bird's eye view and say closest, you know, uh, where the fastest way to get from point A to point B is a straight line. But they look at the the plan that you have made and it's pretty long and circuitous, it's winding. Well, the reason that you have plotted your map thus and so is to replenish your water supply and food supply as you go because there's no way you can get from point A to point B without finding a water source. Now, the only thing worse than trying to do that is you go the long way to get to the water, and when you get there, you find it's dried up. And this is the analogy that Peter's using. They are waterless springs. They promise life, but it's deceptive. They say, herein you will find freedom and self-expression and identity and liberty and uh, gladness and joy, and you will find happiness. But how many in this culture, they go and they believe the lie of the false teachers, the voices of corruption, And they dig deep into that well of identity politics, let's say, as a good example. Some of these false teaching, you know, values. And they draw out from that some of these perverse identities. And they drink it in only to find their mouth full of the sand in which they trod. There is nothing there to sustain you. It is an empty well. You know, the scriptures have analogies similar to this in the prophets. When Jeremiah was speaking to the people, he described their sources of life as tepid cisterns full of uh, bacteria, basically, that would cause them to be sick. You know, another analogy from history is in the Mayan Peninsula, those who worshipped on those huge altars and so forth, you know, in the Mesoamerican region or whatever it was, the Aztecs, the Incas, and so forth. Uh, Scholars or historians surmise that they corrupted their own water supply by throwing their children into their drinking water, and of course, as the decay would set in, more and more people would get sick, and then what was it? It was their false worship, it was their denial of God, it was their lack of fear of Him, it was their pagan ideas that was basically a slow suicide, and destroyed their uh, country, destroyed their people over time, and that place that once brought life proved to be death. The next analogy, storm, or mist driven by storm, Imagine a crop languishing, withering. There's a drought, and your stalks of grain are just desperate for moisture. And finally, that day you see a storm cloud, or you see a rain cloud, let's say on the horizon. And thankfully, the prevailing winds are moving it close, closer and closer. This is the life-saving precipitation that you have prayed for as a farmer. And then it comes. This gentle mist falls upon your grain, and you can almost feel those stems straightening with the life-giving you know, uh, watering from heaven. But what happens after that is a hailstorm and straight line, 80-mile-an-hour winds. And that mist just proved to be the front of a storm front that absolutely decimated and destroyed your crops. Once again, false teaching and the promises of sin are like this. At first, you just revel in, oh, this mist isn't this great. But what happens behind that? is the storm of God's judgments that is inescapable except through repentance. And when that day of his reckoning finally comes, just like in the day of Egypt, the hail rains down, the crops are destroyed, and only those who had the blood of the lamb that represented the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in their doorposts are saved from that whole scale destruction. These are the events that Peter points to, and these are the analogies he uses to bring perspective and to equip us to identify and to rebuke the enemies of the gospel. To stand against the spirit of the age that would seek to dethrone Jesus Christ. They will never do so. But we must stand with him. Amen. There are just consequences for this kind of behavior. It says right here, "...the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for those who offer waterless springs or mist driven by storm. For They speak loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping." From those who live in error. There are just consequences, yes, indeed, another way to describe hell itself, gloom of utter darkness reserved for those who will unrepentantly act in such a way. And again, we see that they're exploiting the weak. Who are the victims? Those barely escaping those who live in error, prime targets, those in a vulnerable spiritual condition. You know, there are so many things that make us spiritually vulnerable, and one of the lessons in this passage is to turn to the Lord. Put on the armor of God, as Paul would say. Strengthen our inner defenses. Don't let the circumstances that surround us, the despair, the weakened defenses, the fear or the desperation or whatever, temptations to sin wear down our defenses. Because this makes us ripe for exploitation. And it makes us thirsty for the waterless springs. Uh, God forbid, or we are deceived by the mist driven by storm. A key verse for our day, as I mentioned before, they enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, false prophets. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for what overcomes a person, whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. Remember that verse. It will help you to have discernment in the day in which we live. How many voices are out there promising us freedom? You know, there are so many, it has become, this is a little axiom I put together and it's proven true over the last few years. It has become a civic virtue to champion the cause of marginalized groups Moral absolutes notwithstanding. It's a little axiom I put together to describe the false teaching of our day. So much of our culture has celebrated as a virtue, championing the cause of marginalized groups, groups without reference to moral absolutes, without reference to God's standard of righteousness. So any group that has any perverse identity that society has not wholly embraced, they become the new cause celeb that we should welcome in and embrace. And you see this all over the place. And it is deceptive. it is false teaching, it's destructive. And what is it doing? These messages, they promise freedom, you know, tolerance, virtue, everyone on equal standing, diversity, equity, inclusion, for every kind of preference that you can imagine. They themselves, however, are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. And we are flirting and embracing whole scale the kinds of sin that in our culture today that Romans 1 describes as evidence of being wholly given over, of being abandoned to our insatiable appetites and the desires of the flesh. So make no mistake, we got our work cut out for us, but also avail yourself of sufficient means. Again, this is why we need Peter's words so desperately these days, because they are sufficient to equip us to identify and rebuke the enemies of God with gospel authority. And in that rebuke and in that identity is a call for repentance and faith. We're preaching the gospel. When we point out sin, and we point out the Savior. And so we should do so. Final analogy, dogs and pigs. So this is a fun one. Proverbs 26, 11 is cited in this one. Peter says, beginning or he begins by illustrating or by describing how people who follow the false teachers and the false teachers themselves are like dogs and sows. And then he uses that proverb in closing. So verse 21, it would be better... Or again, I should back up to 20b. They are again entangled in them and overcome. Or I'll just begin in 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them again and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, for what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. This analogy helps to clarify the nature of the enemy. And clearly what's in view here is apostasy. What is apostasy? Falling away of your once professed faith. Some might say that these verses are an argument that someone can lose their salvation. I would dispute that. I would point to this analogy to make the case. These are people that had a show of virtue, a show of morality. But in the end, they just reverted to their true nature. What was their true nature? Well, just like a dog returns to his vomit, they do what a dog does. Or just like a sow after washing returns to the mud, they return to the mud. And so it is with someone who is not truly regenerate. So it is with someone whose nature has not been changed, who has not been born again, like a sow returning to the mire and a dog returning to the vomit, we revert back to our old sin. And Peter is saying to identify or to acknowledge to uh, acknowledge that distinction and then to ask the Lord or, and then to seek the assurances of salvation in the true and unadulterated gospel. The apostate, Peter says, has greater accountability because he has a knowledge of the truth, at least intellectually. There are higher stakes because he has come this close to an understanding yet has denied it with even more presumption and a high hand. He has a knowledge of what he opposes. He has, been, he has seen God like Balaam did in that angel of God form with his sword and still, and still is so corrupt And he is so high-handed and presumptuous in his sin as to convince Balak to try to deceive the people of God by seducing them in immorality. This is horrible. This is the kind of thing that brings the judgment of God against a person or against a people. These analogies in context, they illustrate the dog and the pig, actions confirming one's nature. So if your nature has not been truly transformed, sooner or later, your actions will confirm it. That's the message there. And any attempts to change, short of the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the means of his body and bread alone, they prove to be futile. It's like washing a pig and turning it back to the fields and saying, now don't you dare go back into the mud. Is that pig going to listen to you? No, it won't. But there is a change that can happen, a fundamental one, and that's why the Bible calls this a new nature Are calls the act of transformation, regeneration, being born again. The old has gone, the new has come. We might ask this question. I mean, we go back to verse 20. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled and overcome, it raises this question. How can we truly escape the defilements of the world? And the answer is to truly realize the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ a heart-changing, a nature-regenerating knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the only way to escape the defilements of the world. A heart-changing, a nature-transforming knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the only way to live in victory in a culture such as ours, is the only way to escape the defilements of this world. Turn with me, if you would, in closing to Revelation chapter 7, which we'll read in just a minute. As I was putting this message together, though, it just struck me how, for every analogy of the enemies of the church that Peter gives, there's a contrast, there's an opposite that is ours in Christ. Whereas in our sin, we are irrational animals, in Christ, we are given the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians. Uh, 2, 6, or 7, 16, if you wanted to write a couple of these down. Whereas in our sin we are irrational animals, in Christ he gives us the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians seven sixteen. Whereas in our sin we are blots and blemishes, according to Peter, in Christ we are cleansed by washing of the water with the word. I pray that he's doing that even today as his word is proclaimed, Ephesians five twenty six. Whereas in our sin, Peter describes us as accursed children, in Christ, we have received adoption as sons, Galatians 4, verse 5. Whereas in our sin, we followed the way of Balaam, that false prophet, in Christ, we follow Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six. Whereas in our sin, we were waterless springs. In Christ, we are led to springs of living water, John 4, 13. Whereas in our sin, we were storm-driven mists, as Peter says. Nevertheless, in Christ, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12, verse 8. And as Peter says, in our sin, we exist on a diet of dog vomit. Nevertheless, in Christ, on the contrary, in Christ, we partake in him of the bread of life, John 6, 35. And finally, whereas in our sin, we are pigs, sows that wallow in the mire, in Christ, we receive white robes of righteousness. Revelation 7, 13 through 17. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you see the contrast and how the Bible clarifies it so? What we have at this table before us today, now as we transition to communion, is a cleansing power to take away the mire of a sow who revels in her sin, as it were, to wash that away and to replace it with right white robes of Christ's righteousness. It required an atoning work, the shedding of Christ's blood, and that's what the cup represents. Whereas we existed in our sin on a diet of our own dog vomit, I mean, just to be dramatic about it, but following the words of the apostle, so at the Lord's table is represented the bread of life, which gives us sustenance unto forever. And in Him, we have the assurance of eternal life through the means, the provision that He supplies. And all of this is possible because of the cross. And this is the message ultimately of hope in a day such as ours. Repentance for the unbeliever and encouragement and equipping for the believer and, of course, repentance if necessary if we have lost the love and appreciation for our salvation or if we have grown lackluster in our fear of the Lord not been vigilant in our duty to kill sin according to the work of Christ. Today, I encourage you at the Lord's table to remember these things and to take not only his word proclaimed, but also his word dramatized, if you will, before you at this table as equipping, as equipment and encouragement for your calling. And now as we pray in transition, let us bind our hearts together for this purpose. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to partake of you, Lord, in the hearing of your word. Your word is the word of life. Lord, in the partaking at your table, of that which symbolizes our eternal sustenance and hope and home. We thank you that at this covenant meal, that God, through the work of Jesus Christ, has set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That we need not fear being derailed by the false teachers of our day and even the greater enemy, our own sin, because Christ has died in our place. I pray as we partake in the hearing of your word and at the feast of your table this day, that which these elements proclaim and that which your word commands would be our breath, our life, would be our food and our drink, and would encourage us and sustain us in the wilderness and trial that you have for us on our journey. May we glorify you more consistently and boldly in light of the means that you have supplied. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.